Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. And thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. By the way, a little bit more fun, too. Go to www.slack.com to learn more. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner, fresh from Charleston, South Carolina. I had a wonderful time with, no doubt, some of you who are listening to this, because Motley Fool One members descended once again en masse to another destination that the very talented Emily Wallingsford here at the Motley Fool selected for us. Emily picks each of them. I understand our next one will be in San Francisco in February. So that's a Motley Fool One event, and I was down there with about 20 fools. Um, some wonderful people like Robert Brokamp of Motley Fool Answers fame, and my good friend Jeff Fisher, and Andy Cross, our Chief Investment Officer, and of course, various other forms of Motley talent. It really was a great team effort, and if you were there, I hope you enjoyed it at least as much as I did. I will say, having not actually gotten into Charleston, South Carolina for Motley Fool 1 Charleston, that I did enjoy Isle of Palms, South Carolina, and I thought that the Wild Dunes Resort where we were, and I played some golf, and actually exceeded my own very low expectations for my own game in a nine-hole Fool-Am tournament. That was a lot of fun, too. And I think I'm going to have cause to quote um, one of our members with whom I played golf, Bob Andreessen, a little bit later in this podcast, because he gave a great Yogi Berra-like one-liner that's going to fit in well with what we're doing this week. So, what are we doing this week? Well, I want to go back and kind of restate some of the Rule Breaker classic points Stories, basics for some of you who may be new. Um, for those longtime listeners, you know that after you do your 100th podcast, the older ones start dropping below the fold. They drop off of iTunes, etc. You can always find all of our podcasts at podcasts.fool.com. So you can find every Rule Breaker Investing podcast there, though admittedly, it's a long, scrolly experience. You'll have to keep Load, 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 load more to go back more than two years now of Rule Breaker Investing podcasts. So, given that we are in some senses losing, in quotes, that material, I wanted to, in this 120th Rule Breaker Investing podcast, by my count anyway, this is number 120, I wanted to go back to some of those first 10 or so and go back over those points. And in fact, I'd like your help with this effort because this is part of a broader thing we're going to try here at Rule Breaker Investing, and that is to create a starter kit for new listeners. A lot of podcasts you can just kind of start in the middle. Now, not all of them. Something like Serial, the very popular NPR podcast, you may not want to start in the middle of a season. It's kind of like starting in the middle of a season of a good Netflix series. But for a lot of other podcasts, let's say the newsy ones, you can pick up kind of anywhere you like. But for Rule Breaker Investing, this is a strategy, this is an approach, it's kind of a thought framework. And I think it's really helpful for any new listener to have that in place as he or she begins listening to number 121 and number 122. And so here's where I'm going to ask your help. And I'm going to mention this 
this time and next week and the week after. So, just the next few weeks. If there is a particular Rule Breaker Investing podcast that is your favorite, or that you think if you were creating, let's say, a 10 podcast starter kit for a friend of yours that you were trying to turn on to this, which 10 podcasts or stories or points going back over the work that we've done together, which ones do you think should be in that Rule Breaker starter kit? Because that's, in fact, exactly what we're looking to create. About 8 to 10 past podcasts that can be strung together and picked up as a package by anybody who wants to get started with Rule Breaker Investing going forward. So, to tie a bow around that, email us, rbi at fool.com, my producer Rick Engdahl, our fearless leader Chris Hill, and all of us here at Rule Breakers would appreciate any effort that you have. If you can recall one of your favorite podcasts or a classic point or something that you think should be in that starter kit for your friend or family member in future, rbi at fool.com, and thank you in advance. All right. So, I'm going to call this podcast something like The Foolish Truths That I Hold to Be Self Evident. My self evident foolish truths. I've got nine of them for you, and they're ordered in their own informal framework that I hope will make sense. Nine things that I kind of take for granted. I think you should, but I don't want to take for granted that you do take them for granted or know them for yourself to be self-evident. So, here are my nine self-evident foolish truths. Number one. Number one is about business. In fact, the first two are just about business. We're not even talking about investing yet. So, Point number one is about how to do business right and finding businesses that do business right. And there are a lot of them, and they are growing. There is a growing number. I would say that we are living in an increasingly enlightened capitalistic environment. Not ever to say things are perfect or can't be improved. In fact, one of the things I love about the time in which we are living is that things are pretty persistently improving, sometimes in fits and starts, and sometimes we take a big step backwards. And It's not true of all areas of the world, but the way that capitalism is practiced and taught about today is far superior to what I inherited anyway when I came on this earth about 51 years ago. Maybe you, too. And I guess, apropos of that point, I should mention that I'm taping this podcast last week. I taped this last Thursday, because this week, I am in Austin, Texas, at the Conscious Capitalism Conference. And so, point number one is just quick chapter and verse, Conscious Capitalism. So, there are four principles that underline what I consider to be effective capitalism. And these are not my ideas. These were originally settled on by Whole Foods co-founder John Mackey and his friend, academic and co-author Raj Sisodia. Both of them I have seen speak so beautifully and eloquently about how to do business right. And they kind of settled on these four principles, and you can read their book, Conscious Capitalism, and learn more about them. But quickly, number one is that you're a purpose-driven organization. Now, this works for-profit and not-for-profit, and I think a lot of us recognize that not-for-profits often do this very well. They have a strong sense of purpose. One of the things that we've tried to do at our little company, The Motley Fool, that I think our employees appreciate, is we've tried to bring the heart of purpose from the not-for-profit world right into the entrepreneurial platform that is Motley Fool Incorporated. So, a strong sense of purpose. I'm not even saying we're doing it that well, but we're trying. And I hope that you're working for an organization, for-profit or not-for-profit, if you are working, that is also trying and that is purposeful. So, purpose, purpose purpose-driven, really a key part of conscious capitalism. 
The second one, my favorite of the four, is multi-stakeholder orientation. I'm going to park that for a sec, because the third and fourth, quickly, are conscious leadership and conscious culture. So basically, in so many words, servant leaders, people who give the better parking spaces to, let's say, the employees who get to the garage first, they don't have their own pre-demarcated best parking spots in the garage or all the corner offices in the building. Or if they do, nevertheless, you'd say, that person is a servant. He or she is here to serve me as a leader at my organization. So that's servant leadership. And then conscious culture is just having a really strong sense of good corporate culture, which I've talked a lot about on this podcast in the past. But now let me go back quickly to multi-stakeholder orientation. So the way that capitalism started to veer away, I think, from its better, purer form probably happened around 100 years ago, when CEOs of Fortune 500 companies began saying that the purpose of this corporation is to maximize, quotes, maximize shareholder value. And Milton Friedman, the very famous, and rightly so, academic, the economist, mostly of the 20th century, Friedman made a big point of saying the purpose of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value. But we at The Motley fool both in our own culture for our organization, but also when we're looking at others and stocks that we might pick, we love to find the corporate cultures that don't just take one stakeholder and try to maximize its value. At the heart of conscious capitalism, you are not trying to maximize the value of your enterprise for any single group. Shareholders, you're not trying to maximize it for customers. You're not trying to maximize it just for your employees. And you're certainly probably not doing it just for the environment or other stakeholders that might be around you, your community. What you're trying to do is create a win for all of them. And you start creating, I think, non-sustainable, sometimes ugly enterprises if you tip everything in favor of one of those groups and say, that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to maximize the value for that stakeholder group. That's why we call it, and Mackie and Sisodia call it, multi-stakeholder orientation, a critical principle, really, a foundation really for building a sound organization with the great structural integrity underneath it that's going to support its long-term prosperity. So that's point number one. A little bit of a mouthful, but I just wanted to make sure that you understood that I hold this truth to be self-evident, that conscious capitalism is a great way to do business, and many of the best businesses of our time do this. And as an investor, I tend to sit up on my seat and take a harder look when I see companies operating in this manner. Okay, principle number two. I'll just call it by the watchword we often use, which is optionality. So, principle number two is just basically that the best businesses are able to evolve. And why does that matter? Well, just like in biological evolution, changes in external circumstances happen, and your organization needs to both be aware of those things and be adjusting itself to be relevant and or successful and or just survive into the next era by evolving. And one of the best ways that innovative companies manage to do this is often they have a second or third trick. And we call that, again, optionality. It means you have multiple possible futures. The strongest business of our time, I think, is probably Alphabet. Looking across all of Alphabet's different businesses, starting with Google, and then looking across the globe and seeing all the different places that it is doing its googly things, that is incredibly strong. And the optionality there is enviable. And I hold that up even over something like Amazon or Apple, because I just believe that Alphabet is operating 
across more fronts and doing more interesting stuff than any other company in the world. Now, very few organizations are going to be like that, and very few stocks that you and I will pick have that kind of resilience. But as long as you understand the concept that just like in biological evolution, it's going to be really important when external circumstances change, the ice age hits, it's going to be really important for companies to recognize it's getting cold, let's say, and they need to stop doing this and start doing this other thing. And the ones that can actually do that, that have the leadership, that has the vision, and the strength to actually be able to implement those changes, and permission from the markets and customers and partners to evolve, those are the companies that you and I want to own. So, points one and two are about businesses themselves. And now let's get into the market. Point number three. Principle number three that I hold to be self evident, I hope you do too, because it's just straight data. Basically, one year out of every three, the stock market drops on average. Sometimes those years happen in a row. Uh, but often it's kind of the average bear market when it hits is about 12 to 18 months. And significant bear markets, where we would actually use that phrase as opposed to just a down year, those might sometimes bring those down years into a pair, even maybe three in a row, although very rarely anything like that. Even bad long markets have some up years here and there. But the good news is that two years out of every three, the stock market goes up. And so, as I've been wont to say in the past, the only market timing I ever do, I'm somebody who will never predict the stock market. I don't think I'd be good at it. I don't think anybody else is. And I don't think it's worth your time or much thought, frankly, because it's never going to be much more than a coin flip. But that's why, as I was saying to some Motley Fool One members in Charleston a few days ago, whenever anybody asks me where the market's headed over the next year, I always say, it's headed up. I think it's headed up. And I'll be the first to say, it might drop. One year and three, it does. But by simply saying, I think it's headed up, I get it right two-thirds of the time, which, if you look at your market timers, you'll see I have an enviable track record with my market predictions. You can, too. Feel free to copy. But now, looking at the downside of market drops, yeah, markets drop. One year and three, it doesn't feel good to be an investor. So, you have to be ready for that. And we haven't had a down year of any real meaning over the last five, six, seven, eight years. So, by no means am I predicting the market will go down. In fact, I think the market's going up in the next 12 months. I don't know about you, but I can tell you, at some point in the next few years, the market will drop. And you need to be ready for that. You need to understand that that's how it works. It could be nasty. It could be rather mild. It might happen quickly. It might take a while. No matter what, always expect that the market can and will drop. And you need to have as part of your own resilience as an investor, which is going to be point number five, but we'll get there in a sec, you need to be able to recognize that's going to happen and not be freaked out about it. Which leads me to point number four. Up, But before our next point, Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to, well, I hope you're Rule Breaker Investing. Chances are you're confident when it comes to other aspects of your work, your hobbies, and your life. Well, Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. Thank you, Rocket Mortgage. Point number four. And this is the lovely phrase, 
the rowboat syndrome, which I swipe from Jack Bogle, as I've swiped many other great lines and stories from the Vanguard founder and the investing master and great friend of the fool. The rowboat syndrome. So, raise your hand. I always say, don't do this if you're driving. Raise your hand. Raise both hands if you know what the rowboat syndrome is. And I'm guessing a minority of us have both hands up right now, and nobody who's driving is doing this. So, the rowboat syndrome is, well, here's the way I'll put it to paraphrase Jack a little bit. As we're paddling down the river of life as investors, as we're paddling down the river of life, which direction should we be looking? Do you want to be in a rowboat? Most of the rest of the world is, because when you paddle a rowboat, you're looking backwards. And so many market commentators and just our fellow humans, forget about the stock market, so many people are fixated on that rear view mirror. They're just looking backward as paddle, 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 they go forwards through time down the river of life. So I've always said, toss away your rowboat and take a canoe. Because when you take a canoe, you're facing forward. You recognize that all that really matters is what comes next around that bend in the river as you paddle, paddle, paddle forward, looking the right way. So, as an investor, you're going to not spend too much time looking backward, but ask where are things headed and getting your money aligned right there. But I've also said to close point number four toss away your paddle, kick away that canoe, because there's a much more efficient way for you to go down this breezy stream, and that's with a sailboat. Because the beauty of the stock market, as anybody who studied it knows, is that it tends to rise 8 to 11% or so annualized over long periods of time. And that is the wind at your back. What an absolutely awesome trip it is that you and I get to be on as investors. Coming up, point number five very shortly. As investors, what a great trip to think that we can just sit there in the boat and let the wind push us forward, occasionally tack when needed, enjoy the sights, and have fun getting rich together as the winds push us forward. In fact, when I think about the paddlers in their canoes, that feels a lot like trading to me. That feels a lot like sometimes day trading a lot of effort and not nearly as much reward as just sitting there in our foolish sailboat. Point number four. Point number five. The now much hyped point number five, where I talked about how I was going to mention the word investor, it's really not that remarkable a point, but it does introduce what I've called in the past my dead arm initiative. So here it is You have permission to give me a dead arm if you're near me at an event or around Full HQ. If we ever meet and you ever hear me use this phrase, and please don't dead arm me now because I'm actually just demonstrating, quote, long term investor. End quote. Or, quotes, long term investing. You are allowed to give me a dead arm if you ever hear me say that. Because, as I was saying on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast when I did it last month, Invest Like the Best, which was so much fun, and I've made this point many times over the years, investing by its very nature is long term. So when you are saying that phrase that I won't use now, it's a tautology. It's an unnecessarily, it's a redundant restatement. And it even confuses some people, I think, because they think that there's other forms of investing beyond the long term. And there's not. The opposite of investing is trading. Trading, by its nature, is done short term. There are two players in the market, from my viewpoint they are investors and traders. You know which one this podcast is about. 
And I'm not here to denigrate trading. It can be fun for some people. Uh, it's a pastime for others, and some people do it very seriously, full time, and they get paid a lot of money as traders on floors, bond traders, futures traders. But for you and for me anyway, if if you're like me, you're a lazy bum who wants to do other things beyond staring at wiggles and waggles on charts or looking at CNBC or following the market all day every day. I think there are just too many more interesting things in life. And so the good news is, you fellow fool can with me be an capital I an investor. The Latin root for the word invest is investiri. That means to put on the clothes of, to wear the clothes of. And my mental image, if you're a sports fan, I hope you'll get this, is when you invest, you put on the jersey of your hometown team and you go to the stadium and you cheer them on. You love your team. You should love the companies you're invested in, the consciously capitalistic, I hope, enterprises that you're invested in doing good things in this world, purpose driven. Managing for the long term, resilient, maybe with optionality, but you keep that hometown jersey on. I was at the Vanderbilt Kansas State football game a few weeks ago, visiting one of my kids at Vanderbilt, and I was reminded once again in an SEC football environment for those who've been there, just how many people are wearing the shirt. And it's not just true of college football, although very prominently this time of year it is. It's also true of soccer and hockey and baseball, the list goes on. People wear the jerseys. Why don't we do that with our money? Well, investors do. Good news. I hope you do. Rule-breaking investing does. We put on the jerseys, we keep them on, even if sometimes we have a bad game or even a bad year. Again, your team's not always going to win every year, but if you found a great team, stick with them. My baseball team, the Minnesota Twins, just got knocked out of the playoffs last week by the New York Yankees. The Yankees have made the playoffs 19 of the last 23 years. As I said on Mike Francesa's show on The Fan, WFAN in New York City, which I appeared on a little while ago, I said, Mike, that is a buy and hold. The Yankees are a great example for all of their fans of exactly how to treat your money and invest in the stock market. And Mike gets it, because he's an investor. So now you know the Latin root, now you know what you're doing, and now you know the dead arm challenge, the dead arm initiative. You may dead arm me if you ever hear me say, you know what I'm not going to say. Now, Chris, I want to move on to the next point. But I mentioned earlier that I got to play golf in Charleston, South Carolina at our Motley Fool One event last week. And I got to play with two guys who are experienced golfers. And I had not picked up a golf club in more than a year. And so I was doing what I think you would be doing, which is I was talking myself down as much as possible. Because the truth is, I'm not hard to talk down as a golfer. Even though I've played for years, I haven't played much in recent years. And even when I played maybe 15 rounds at the most in any year, I don't think I ever cracked the mid 80s. So I'm just not that good a golfer. At my very best, I might have had a handicap of, of 18 or 20. So I hadn't actually played golf for more than a year, but for our Fool Am event, I stepped up with my two friends, Bob and Tom, and on the first tee, with a set of rental clubs, I crushed a 260-yard drive right down the middle. And they're like, wow, yeah, you said you haven't played in a while. I was like, I, I, I promise you, I have not played at all. And over the course of the next nine holes, I'm not going to say I played great, but I played far better than I was expecting, and certainly far better than I had led my two friends to believe I would be playing. And we had a great best ball tournament. We finished those nine holes, that's all it was, nine holes, two under as a best ball team. That's probably the only time I've ever been on a 
team that went under par on a best ball event. Again, mainly due to my friends Bob and Tom, but we're reflecting on it near the end, and I was saying, you know, Bob, I just I can't believe it because I haven't played golf. I, I played maybe two rounds the last three or four years, and um, I think I almost had a birdie on that last hole. And he said, you know, you should play less more frequently. And we all laughed because. That, to me, that was a spontaneous reaction on his part, not premeditated, but that is a pure Yogi Berra-ism. For those who know the now-departed former Yankees catcher with the great wit, with all of the funny lines, you should play less more frequently. And we three being fools, the conversation then naturally drifted to how, you know, that's good advice for investors. You should play less more frequently. You should trade less. You should stew less about your portfolio more frequently. Bet you'd do better. Thanks, Bob Andreessen. Well, thanks to Slack for supporting our podcast. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making your working lives simpler and more productive. With Slack, you can reduce emails and streamline your team's communication. It allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, group meme sharing. We have a lot of fun with Slack here at The Motley Fool, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app. So, yes, we use it here at The Motley Fool. It helps us save time and improves productivity. I use Slack every day. That even includes Saturday and Sunday. I love Slack. No more searching through emails for that one follow-up or searching through multiple systems to find what you're looking for. Slack is easy and convenient. It works everywhere you go with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly, so you can always pick up where you left off, no matter where you are. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. All right, now let's get away from just business and away from the markets general investing, and let's go very specifically into our space, rule breaker investing. Let's think about why it works, what wins on the markets, why it's so much fun, what we're all about here at Rule Breakers. Point number six, we're fools. Fools don't like wisdom. I don't like conventional wisdom. Well, I do like conventional wisdom when it works, and by the way, sometimes conventional wisdom works. That's why it's become a convention. But many other times, especially, I think humans, sometimes we like to play tricks in our own minds. We think that there's a certain way of thinking about something, or maybe we were taught. Maybe we were taught how to think. I was disturbed as I drove in this morning hearing The Economist audio edition, what's happening in Turkey right now, which is that um, kids are no longer being taught biological evolution in that European Union nation. Their leader, Erdogan, is pulling that learning from kids' textbooks. It's going to be hard to be a competitive, modern nation if you are not teaching kids how to think as best you can. So Sometimes it's the stories we tell ourselves in our heads that starts to set up the conventional wisdom that then sometimes becomes conventional because other people start thinking the same thing too and what i would think of as suboptimal thoughts become shared and that's what's so great about foolishness and that's why it's so much fun to break the rules i am a board gamer that has become clear to anybody who has listened to this podcast any length of time that exceeds maybe 2 months or so and as a board gamer i recognize that often the best approach to take to a good strategy board game is to look around, see what others are doing, 
See how they're all competing for the same resources, or maybe in this area of the map or the game board. And by not doing what everybody else is doing, often you put yourself in a better position to win the game. And I think the same thing is true of the game of business, where new businesses pop up, trying things in different ways, going breaking the rules of how things are done in their industries, and succeeding. Well, the best ones do. And I also think it's true of investing and investment strategies. Part of what I love about Rule Breaker Investing is we're taking a highly contrary approach. None of it is taught in schools, um, other than maybe full school. A lot of it is self-learned, and it continues to evolve as an approach and a strategy. But it's very contrary, as I'll be mentioning shortly in another point. And that's part of the reason I think it works. So, point number six is just about the beauty of fighting against conventional wisdom, something that The Motley Fool has done across many fronts and contexts in our first 24 years on this planet. Foolish truth, I hold self-evident. Number seven is a brief restatement of the Rule Breaker Six Traits, the six things that I'm looking for in my favorite stocks. There will be a tendency or temptation for me to attempt to illustrate each one of them here, but no, that results in far too long a podcast, and good news, some of that material has already been done on this podcast, and as you help us build the Rule Breaker Starter Kit, we'll probably pull from that. But let me just briefly restate the six traits in order that I look for when picking stocks. Number one, I love to find top dogs and first movers in important emerging industries. If you're not the lead husky, the view never changes. I love to find the lead huskies, especially in emerging industries, technologies, world changers. Number two, we're looking for sustainable advantage. Sustainable competitive advantage that can often be gained just through sheer business momentum by the big players, like Facebook becomes unstoppable at a certain point within its industry. Patent protection helps a lot, especially for some of the medical companies that we invest in. Visionary leadership is a great form of sustainable advantage. We have Jeff Bezos, you don't. Try to beat us. Or just inept competition. That's also a great way to find sustainable advantage when all of the players in your industry aren't really serving customers, cable industry, and you enter with a new model. You can start to win over not just customers, but shareholders if you're Reed Hastings at Netflix, let's say, because you've got some inept competition. So that's sustainable advantage. Number three is strong past price appreciation. Yes, very contrarily. We're looking for stocks that are doing very well, that may already well have doubled over the last six or 12 months. Most of the world, in my experience, I submit to you, is looking at the list of 52-week lows, asking which one they want to buy. We're looking at 52-week highs. Number four, good management and smart backing. The value of visionary leadership is always underestimated by the markets, but smart backing, looking for which VCs, which venture capitalists are funding these enterprises. Some VCs, just like some CEOs, are better than others. So, keep an eye on that. Number five, love to find companies with strong consumer appeal, that have a brand name, that know how to market well and speak well, and truthfully and authentically to customers. Winningly, often with some humor. Strong consumer appeal, great brands. And then finally, number six, yes, the ultimate secret sauce of Rule Breaker Investing, we want to hear that our stocks are, quotes, overvalued, according to the financial media. The more prominent the voice calling our stock, the more overvalued, the better, often, 
it'll be for us as investors. Because when you have those first five principles in place to restate, top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry with a sustainable advantage, strong past price appreciation, good management, smart backing, strong consumer appeal, and somebody at Barron's or on Seeking Alpha or sometimes an anonymous short seller starts saying it's so overvalued, I'm pretty sure I know which way things are going to go over the only term that counts, which is, by definition, for investors, the long term. It doesn't always work, which transitions me to number eight. It doesn't always work, but when it does, it works wonderfully. Now, point number eight, get ready to lose. Foolish, self-evident truth number eight is that you will lose and lose a lot as a rule-breaker investor. I have a horrific statistic for you. Thanks for listening all the way through to this point in the podcast. I've got a special Easter egg stat for you here right now. I have picked, in Motley Fool Rule Breakers history, I've now picked as many stocks that have lost 50% or more as my age. I am 51, and this week, I now have my 51st minus 50% loser. And I hate that. It's shameful. I don't like to think about it. People have followed my advice. I've followed my advice. And a lot of the time, not all the time, and we'll get to that in a sec, but a lot of the time, we lose. And we can lose dramatically. And you need to be ready for that if you're a rule breaker. Otherwise, you're not a rule breaker. You need to be willing to lose. And here's why. Because even though I have 51 minus 50% losers in the 316 stocks that I've picked, over the course of the 13 plus years of rule breakers, 51 minus 50 percenters, good news, the 51st best stock that I've picked is Ellie May. Picked it five years ago this month, and Ellie May is up 232%, the 51st best pick. Can you hold both those thoughts in your mind? Can you see that while you're going to eat it a lot, the value of winning? far wipes out the cost of losing. And this is such a critical psychological point. Psychologists tell us that the pain of loss is three times the joy of gain. Think about that. It hurts to lose far more than it feels good to win. That's just true of human psychology. But look at the math that you and I just threw down together. What is, quick quiz, what is the pain of loss at its maximum for an investor? The answer is losing 100% on a stock market recommendation, which I've still never done personally myself. Minus 100%. What is the joy of gain? By contrast, for investors, the answer is that joy is unlimited. My four horsemen, the four stocks in Motley Fool Stock Advisor that have gained 50 times or more of their value, any single one of those four horsemen itself wipes out pretty much all the losses of all of my minus 50% losers, and then leaves profits on top of that. So, just recognize that the math of investing directly reverses the psychology that all of us are bound to. The pain of loss may be three times the joy of gain for most contexts in life, but for you and me, for rule-breaker investors, it's quite the opposite. And a lot of people don't realize that, and they live in fear of ever having a single stock that would lose 50% or more of its value. And finally, foolish, self-evident truth number nine is the definition of a term that I've taken on as my own screen name, 
If you ever join us at fool.com and come to our discussion boards and Rule Breakers or Stock Advisor, where we each have screen names, and my screen name is TMF Spiffy Pop. So I want to make sure that everybody still listening to me this week knows exactly what a Spiffy Pop is. Let's pretend that you paid $63.37 for a stock that you bought eight years ago. I don't know how many shares you bought, but it was a good buy, good job. You bought it $63.37. And let's just pretend that tomorrow that stock goes up $65 in one day. Maybe it's Maybe it's at $700 a share these days, and when it goes up 65 bucks, that's about a 10% gain for you, which might sound like a pop. About a 10% people would say a 10% pop. But you and I now know that something even more impressive happened. You just got a spiffy pop because you made more in a single day than the cost basis you paid way back when. You made $65 a share in one day, and you only paid $63.37 for that stock in the first place. That is not just a pop, ladies, gentlemen, and fools. That is a spiffy pop. And I invented the concept for investors, people who, by definition, act long-term. We don't get a lot of rah-rah. We're not often invited on CNBC for our short-term market viewpoint. I wanted to have some kind of a concept or rallying cry, a thing that could be a goal for any new investor that we could do together. And I'm really happy to say, here in 2017, across the Motley Fool services, I can now count 29 spiffy pops that have already happened for our members this year. And without bragging here, I should mention that once a stock does its 13th spiffy pop, it hits its baker's dozen. Once it happens for a 13th time for, let's say, Netflix, we stop counting. So I'm not including in my stat of 29 spiffy pops across Motley Fool services this year the dozens and dozens that happened from Netflix or Priceline or Amazon.com, which, when they make 1% moves these days, generate spiffy pops that are no longer interesting. That's why we call that 13th and final spiffy pop for any stock the forget-me pop, because we just don't pay attention anymore. It's boring. So, now you know, by holding to the, let's say, the 53rd minute of this week's podcast, now you know what a spiffy pop is, and what I think you should make a laudable goal that you surely will achieve if you just purpose toward the foolish, self-evident truths that I tried to lay down in front of you this week. And that's it. Enough for this week. Next week's show, I'm going to do something that a lot of you have asked for quite a long time. We're actually going to do a Rule Breaker investing podcast on blockchain and Bitcoin. I'm going to invite my friend and fellow analyst Aaron Bush in, and Aaron and I are going to do the first Rule Breaker Investing podcast on blockchain Bitcoin. So, you asked for it, I hope we deliver. Oh, and one final reminder, we're putting together our Rule Breaker Starter Kit. So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, if there's a favorite past episode or story or point that you remember, that you treasure, that you think that's a great one to share with new members. If you have a new listener, a family member, or friend, if you were trying to recommend this podcast and wanted them to have the right stuff to hear at the start, what would it be? We would really appreciate your help. The email address is rbi at fool.com. Thanks. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.